my lesson today is begin with the end in mind. It's, uh, it is not a parenting sermon. It is not a children's ministry sermon, but it's going to sound like it. Uh, it should be applicable to everyone here, regardless of whether or not you are a children's ministry volunteer or parent or have any sort of interaction with any child ever um, or other adults ever. It should have something for you. Um, so I began preparing this sermon uh, with prayer and scripture, some advice from Drew, and a, a great book called Heart to Teach, edited by, uh, let's see, I think it was Thomas Jones. Yep, Thomas Jones, Kelly Petrie. I highly recommend chapter 14. Um, most of that, most of what I'm preaching today is chapter 14. I went on and, and uh, after all that preparation, I was reflecting on my time here so far in the Blue Ridge Church over the years, and I was you know, really thinking about our kids and the next generation. This is going to be a generational lesson. Uh, so it's particularly appropriate that Zolly White III announces Zolly White IV. We didn't plan that ahead of time. It just worked out nicely. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so I was thinking about generations and had, had all sorts of hope and, and vision and all this, all this stuff. Um, you know, truly the children are our future, etc. And then yesterday, Audrey and I had 16 boys over to our house for Luke's birthday party. And that like almost knocked every good and faithful thought out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, but not quite. I just wanted to say that uh, our kids, the church's kids, were fairly well behaved. Just wanted to let you guys know. Thank you. Um, and uh, God's word is more powerful uh, than a bunch of sugar-crazed 10-year-olds uh, stealing each other's shoes and knocking each other over and screaming nonsense for three and a half hours straight. Uh, not Jonah and Miles Sawyer, though. They, good job, guys. I just want to make that clear. It's an important point to the introduction, um, a sub-point, if you will. And I have a caveat to that as well. Um, all of the, you know, our church's kids were fairly well-behaved, but... This is not always the case. <clears throat> mine included. Mine included. I'll, I'll put mine at the top of that just so nobody feels, you know, attacked personally or anything. Um, our children, my children, don't always behave and they need help and they need parenting. Hence, we're here. We're getting help. All right. So let's see. Hey, awesome. There we go. We're going to get Yogi Berra. We're going to get Yoda uh, before, uh, before we're all done. We're going to have some fun. When it comes to parenting... Uh, not just parenting, really, but any sort of intentional relationship uh, that we have with, with other adults or with teens or whatever, uh, like one another discipleship, like we practice as a church, we have to begin with the end in mind. As Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you might wind up someplace else. We'll just meditate on that for a few minutes. Philosophers and business people, mentors, great athletes like Yogi, uh, they all have some variation of this idea. You know, set goals, stay purposeful, don't just drift aimlessly. Uh, because you and me and our friends and our children will all have challenges and opportunities through life. And if we're not prepared now for those, we'll either be rolled over by the challenges or fail to make the most of the opportunities. And as usual, the Bible was there first, even before the great Yogi Berra. From the Old Testament... Through the new, God is constantly teaching, constantly preparing, constantly pointing his people in the direction they should go, always giving them a faithful vision for where they're headed. I haven't prayed yet, so I think it's appropriate to pray now before jumping into Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let's pray. 
Dear God, uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much, uh, as always, for today. We thank you for, uh, Lord, we thank you for the church. We thank you that we can uh, have, have peers, uh, people in, in the same stage of life as us. We're grateful that we can have mentors, those who, are, uh, uh, those who, have, who have gone on before us, uh, who are ahead of us in life. We thank you for those who are, who are following us in life. We thank you for every single person uh, in this church, uh, every single person in our community, not just the, uh, not just the baptized disciples, but, uh, Lord, but the children, the, uh, the, the extended families, the network of friends that we've built up here in the community. Uh, we pray, God, uh, that we will never take one another for granted, uh, that we will, uh, God, that we will listen for your word, uh, and that we can really be intentional about preparing one another for the challenges and the opportunities to come. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, in talking about this sort of thing, we always go, it seems, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read uh, verse, let's read verse, I think that's 7. God says through Moses, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Even as Moses was preparing uh, the current faithful generation of Israelites to enter into the promised land under Joshua's military leadership, he wasn't focused on tactics or logistics. He wasn't telling, you know, okay, tribe of Judah, you're going to hit them in the south, and tribe of Dan, you're going to hit them in the north, and Ephraim, you're going to faint, and it's, you know, he wasn't thinking or talking about that. He was thinking about, he was thinking ahead beyond the conquest to the next generation, to the children who would inherit the gains that their parents made. And those children would have, to, would have their turn also, just like their parents did. They'd have their turn to either honor God and prosper in the land or to reject him and risk annihilation. And this is kind of God's continuous, uh, continuous promise and warning to Israel through its entire history. Uh, each generation was given that same challenge and that same opportunity. So Moses said to these men and women, carry the commandments with you. Impress them on the hearts of your children. The Hebrew word, I did some research and I found a couple of different shades of meaning to it. There we go. The Hebrew word is shanan. The Hebrew word uh, is literally to engrave, engrave these commandments. And the root of the word is to sharpen. So it's not totally clear to me, probably to somebody wiser than me, whether, whether the metaphor is, you know, chisel these things into the, into the hearts of your children, or if, the, or if it's talking about the tool itself, sharpen the tool. Whichever one, you know, sinks in for you better, use that one. Um, but both imply a repeated action, okay? When you're, when you're carving, when you're chiseling, right? You take this tool, like this uh, Roman-looking fellow is doing. I couldn't find anything older than, you know, kind of first century. Should be like a thousand years older, whatever. But um, when, you're, uh, when you're engraving, you take the tool, you take the hammer, and you're just chink, chink, yeah. chink, and you're going over it again and again. The first cut is never enough. You, you do one cut, chink, chink, and then you take another pass, and you deepen it. You deepen the furrows. You deepen the cuts so that it'll last. If you just kind of scratch your fingernail across a stone, yeah, you'll see something, but it won't hold up after a good rain, right? The, uh, so the Hebrew word implies repetition. If you're, if you're sharpening a tool, again and again, always at the same angle, again and again and again. Um, when something is impressed on you, biblically speaking, it's permanent. And it never leaves you. 
whether you currently believe it or not, impressing is a powerful thing. Um, I think that uh, you know. I, I think that that's something we can take to heart as uh, as parents, uh, as people who've, uh, who've who've seen friends of ours maybe be faithful for a while and then and then depart from the faith. Whether it's parents who've who've seen their children be baptized and then wander or or never get baptized, um, you know, we we all have those sorts of uh, those sorts of those sorts of relationships. But what we can be confident in is that God's word impresses itself. Yeah. Whether the person is currently believing it or not, it is impressed in their hearts. The word is really, really good at that. And I was thinking, what's been impressed on me? I just had my 20th spiritual birthday, and that was, that was really cool. Audrey let me, uh, you know, Audrey really set up my, my morning, let me, uh, let me have a good quiet time. She made me a card, and, um, and it, was, it was great. Uh, she, got, uh, she got an old friend to text me who I hadn't talked to in years and years. I'll talk about him later. Um, and I got to wondering, of, of all the hundreds of lessons that I've heard over these 20 years, and before that too, because I was going to church, I just never had a personal faith of my own, which ones can I actually remember? Like, which words stuck with me? You don't have to remember all of them. You might forget this one, but you're still getting a steady diet of God's word. That's the important thing. But there will be ones that really stick with you. And I was thinking, which ones stuck? Which ones were impressed the most deeply? And one stuck out. It was a brother's uh, campus devotional in campus ministry back at the old O'Hill dining hall. Rest in peace, old O'Hill. It's been replaced by a nicer dining hall, but I have my memories. Um, but everything had been difficult in campus ministry up until that point, and frankly, beyond that point. Um, everything was always hard. We kept reaching out, nobody was responding, and we would hear stories from the George Mason ministry and the ODU ministry, I see you. We were hearing things about, you know, explosive exponential growth and all these, uh, all these miracles. We're like, fine, we'll just keep, we'll just keep chugging along here. It's hard. We're discouraged. We're grumbling a little bit. One guy had walked away just before his baptism. We were all just bummed out. And, um, and Doug Geyer, the guy who was leading the church at the time, he was the friend who Audrey, uh, Audrey got to text me, and that was really sweet. Um, I don't know if Doug's going to hear this. Hi, Doug. Miss you. So Doug sat the four of us brothers down, and he read us a passage in Romans 4. And he said, I think it's great. Uh, he, read, he read Romans 4. And he said, Abraham, guys, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, but was faithful anyway that God could make good on his promise. There's a difference between sunny optimism and real faith. He said, faith has to start by facing hard facts. You can't be faithful to what God has called you to do without acknowledging that, God, that what God has called you to do is hard. If you, don't, if you don't acknowledge that in some way, like, yeah... Being faithful is hard. Obeying God is hard. Then you just kind of put on a fake happy face and push through, and it's never really real, you know? <clears throat> and that was impressed on me. I haven't always liked it, but I always come back to it. You know, whenever I'm struggling with, uh, with, with my faith, with, uh, you know, having an attitude, I think, you know, God's not looking for sunny optimism. He's looking for faith, and he doesn't want us to lie to ourselves. This is hard. This is difficult. And that's the first step, I think, in the kind of faith that Abraham had. And Abraham had a really good kind of faith. That was impressed on me. Amen? Amen. It, was, it was repeated over the years in different words. And it really, like, you know, sharpened and chiseled. Whatever, you want, whatever your metaphor of choice is. 
But I'd like to look, uh, I'd like to take a look now at uh, how Jesus impressed God's word on his disciples. Because as good as that Campus Devo lesson was, Jesus' lessons were even better. Um, And Jesus' lessons were done in much the same way that a parent impresses their lessons on a child. Let's turn to John 15. I'll give you a minute there. Which is Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples, ending in a prayer for unity. Yeah. Point one, Jesus impressed the best. Earlier in the passage, Jesus had called his disciples little children. You know, it's a a diminutive, but it was a respectful thing. He wasn't putting them down. It was a term of endearment. And when I read this passage, uh, I I read so many of the things that I want to pass on to my own kids. So it really feels like a parenting passage to me. Um, Not just be quiet and get along, but love each other. Here we go. We'll read the whole thing. Starting in verse 12. The Bible says that Jesus said, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus loved his disciples. He modeled a self-giving love. He gave of his time, his energy, his wisdom, blood, sweat, and tears, his abilities, and finally his very life. When he said, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you, he's reminding them that God has already given the very best. So check this out. He starts and ends, this is my command, love each other. Okay, Starts with love each other, ends with love each other. Then one level in, he says, this is what love is, to give of oneself, to lay down, like, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And then the second to last thing, he says, my Father will give you whatever you ask. That backs up, Jesus' example backs up this promise. The Father will give you everything. He's giving you everything right now in me. Just like the parenting of a child from birth to adulthood, Jesus' relationship with his disciples changed over time, too. A relatively short amount of time from that of, you know, master-student to friends. Personally, I can't imagine that happening with any of my kids yet. But I know that it will. It will happen. And I really look up to the parents in this congregation uh, who are navigating those tricky waters right now. And I can see something of Jesus in that. Our teens, our college-bound young adults, some of, our, some of our children are already in college. They're no longer toddlers who need to be trained to brush their teeth and not throw fits when they don't get their way. Amen? Amen. They're people, maturing people, who can approach God with, ser- with a level of seriousness, right? They can wrestle in prayer. They can reason with mom and dad through hard questions of faith. I got to ask though, teens, you brushing your teeth? You don't have to be told, right? Yes. Awesome. Ryan and Carla have impressed that on Kennedy. She is brushing her teeth. Can move on to the harder teachings now. That's awesome. Um, Let's see. Yeah, there we go. He says, I've called you friends. And you did not choose me, but I chose you. So there's this relationship, and it's a relationship with a purpose. That friendship has a purpose, to bear fruit. The third thing that Jesus says kind of mirrors the third to last thing that he says. He talks about their relationship, and he talks about the purpose of that relationship. 
I was really encouraged uh, to see the, uh, a couple nights ago that some of the teen boys and uh, some of the younger guys engaging in that purpose uh, at the mall. Whether it's cold contact evangelism, let's get that. Yes, there they are. Sharing their faith at the mall. They did share their faith. They didn't just sit at the food court. They were inviting people to church and getting into those conversations. So much respect for you guys. I love it. I love it. Point one is brought to you by Belk. Um, but no matter, what it, no matter what form that takes, whether it's cold contact evangelism like these guys were doing with a stranger for 30 seconds to five minutes, or if it's family devotionals over 18 years, or building a friendship with, with your neighbor or coworker over several months or years, drawing people into God's family is one of the things that's closest to Jesus' heart. And everything that Jesus learned, here's the middle part of, of, his, of, the, of this passage here. Everything that Jesus learned from the Father, there we go. Everything he learned from the Father, he impressed on his friends. You can bet that the disciples remembered everything that Jesus said. There we go. And a few of them fortunately wrote some of it down. Jesus impressed God's word on, uh, and, and God's will on his friends in a way that prepared them For what they were about to face. Point two. Jesus knew the challenges ahead. Jesus spoke plainly about what was about to happen. He'd been speaking about it. Whether with uh, metaphor and figures of speech. That the disciples didn't understand. Or whether he told them like very directly. I'm going to be betrayed and killed. And the disciples were like. We still don't understand what you're talking about. Um, He prepared them to be persecuted and scattered. To be hated and rejected. Jesus had actually been preparing them for this moment almost since the beginning of his ministry. Let's go to Matthew 10, uh, verse 16. Early on in his ministry in Galilee, this is well before the crucifixion, well before going to Jerusalem, he sent the disciples out in pairs to train them in ministry. He said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. I'm sure that Peter and the boys faced opposition at that time. They went out two by two all over Galilee, Uh, but nothing like what was coming later. As far as we know, none of them were actually tried before governors and kings until after the crucifixion. So he was warning them about something, getting them ready, and then put them in a situation that probably was not as intense as what they would face later. So he's preparing. Just like with our kids, we we give them a challenge. We give them a, uh, you know, we we tell them to do a relatively easy thing and then prepare them for the next thing. We give them a little bit more slack, a little bit more room to make mistakes. And that's what Jesus was doing here too. And Jesus prepared them for it early while he was still there to give them feedback and encouragement uh, and correction. I can imagine them coming back, and you know, Peter probably got in trouble, and you know, he, he probably got, he probably did get flogged in the synagogue. And Jesus said, "Peter, how did it go? Uh, I, I got flogged in the synagogue. Jesus, why'd you get flogged in the synagogue, Peter? I cursed out the synagogue leader. Peter, were you shrewd as a snake, like I said, or did you say something foolish that got you in trouble?" Peter, be honest. <laughs> you know, and so he's correcting them, right? I'm kind of making that up, but I'm sure there was something like that that happened. He's, he's giving them the feedback that they need while he's there, while he's present, to train them and get them ready. 
as parents, as friends, as disciples, uh, with responsibilities to one another. Uh, we're in a very unique position, right? Jesus knew exactly what the future was going to be for these guys. He, 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 uh, he hinted to Peter in the exact, the exact way that Peter himself would die. Um, we don't know what our futures, we didn't, sorry, we didn't know what our futures would be when we were kids, right? When I was 12, I didn't know where I would be when I was 13. I didn't know what college I would go to. I didn't know what I would do for a living. Certainly didn't, yeah, there's a lot of things I didn't know. We didn't know what our futures would be, but now we do. Think back to when you were a kid. You're thinking about what's my future going to be. And up until your current age, you now know what that answer is, right? So you're in this unique position to say, from when I was a teenager, when I was a child, to my current age, I know what happened. We don't know, we didn't know how things would turn out professionally or spiritually or academically or romantically or in the formation of our character, but we know where we are now. We know the hard times that we've gone through, and I got to say, we've been through some very hard times as a church collectively this year, been through a lot. We know what happened to help us stay faithful through the hard times, and we knew what it took to overcome, to get through. And with time, we can look back and prayerfully, we can see how God took us through those hard times. But our children, our friends, the people we're helping, uh, the people we're discipling, they will go through the same sorts of things that we will, right? All of us will lose loved ones. All of us will have professional career setbacks or frustrations in, in relationships like we all have. That's not a, that's not a mystery. That's not a, uh, you know, that's not a surprise. It's coming. It's only what, what, the, what shape it takes, right? And you know what you've gone through. And it's not so much of a stretch to tell somebody else, you'll probably go through some of the same things. So you're not, you're not at Jesus' level future telling. Uh, but we can say with some authority, these are the sorts of things that life throws at you. And these are the things that you'll need to get on straight now to help you be prepared so that you won't get rolled. Right? Yeah. To paraphrase, here he comes. Yoda, the challenges that we face can be our greatest teachers. Why is that? Not my favorite movie, by the way, but this was a good scene. For better or worse, we we do remember pain, right? Things Things that happen to us that are painful do sink in. And whatever we're thinking and feeling during those moments, they they do become imprinted on us. Let's do our best now. Using, as it says in 2 Timothy 4, chapter, uh, verse 2, use great patience and careful instruction with our children in our discipling relationships and our friendships so that people will, will learn from every challenge and not run and hide. Yeah. Right? right? Something else that was impressed on me years ago, pretty deeply over time, by repetition, was Phil Booker's saying, and you might know what I'm going to say, never let a challenge go to waste. And Phil, Phil would say it with a smile, never let a challenge go to waste. Right? <laughs> Big smile, closed eyes. I love it. Um, God always has something to teach us, whether through good times or bad, something to change in you, even in the worst circumstances. Whether it's you know a minor inconvenience or a major setback, or uh, you know or or something tragic, right? God is always present, and He's always working. Jesus was a master of that preparation. I think I've lost my. I was holding on to it, and the battery case fell out. Jesus was a master of preparation. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Matthew chapter 10, sorry. Leave Yoda behind and go on to the real master. 
Jesus not only knew the challenges ahead, but he also knew the opportunities ahead. Because even in the midst of persecution, Jesus knew that God would be opening some unlikely doors. Let's pick it up in Matthew 10, where we left off. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how to respond or what to say. In that hour, Jesus says, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. How's that for impressing the word on the disciples' hearts? Jesus is saying, basically, when you're in the most intense and high pressure and stressful situation, don't worry, you will have the words. You will be ready. What has Jesus been doing this whole time up until this moment and through this moment? He's been giving his disciples the wisdom and the conviction that they'll need to stand up, impressing them deeply, sharpening them, repeating and repeating and repeating those same lessons. We, we have some of the words in the Gospels. We have some of the words that Jesus said. He said so many more things, and the words we do have, scholars believe he said them over and over and over, right? He, he was a repeater. He was chiseling these things into Peter, John, James, and the rest of them. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And in John 17, uh, he promised that the Spirit would draw out from the disciples every memory and every understanding uh, of Jesus and lead them into all truth. I love that. <clears throat> and that happens sometimes. Um, you know, maybe you're, in, uh, maybe you're in one life stage right now and you've been hearing lessons and you've been getting discipling and your parents maybe are telling you something over and over and over again and you know it's not taking this, is, this has happened a lot in, in, my, in my experience. Hear the same thing over and over and over again. You just got to grow up. Move to the next stage of life, you know. We used to say, have a birthday, bro. You know, I don't know what, I don't know what. Just get to the next place. And then all those things that were said to you when you were younger, they do fall into place. They really, really do. Um, I, hear, I hear my dad telling me to turn off the lights and because I'm telling my kids, turn off the lights. I never turned off the lights. Lo and behold, I'm channeling the will of my father into, uh, into the kids. They're not obeying, but, you know, they'll get it. They'll get it when they have kids. Turn off the lights. Letting all the cold air in. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Where are we? Yeah. Right. Let me go back. Cool. Um, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. And then finally in Acts 1.8, he, he kind of brought it all home. This is, these are some of the last words that Jesus said after the, uh, after the resurrection, before he ascended. He told Peter and the rest, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I want to ask you guys, specifically the parents, not just the parents, where will your children be in 10 or 20 years from now? Okay. Now, everybody else, where will the people in your ministry be in 10 or 20 years? Ask the teens, where will, where will your peers be in one or two or three years? I don't know. I, you don't know either. Some will stay and build here. Others will move to other states, other cities, or even to the other side of the world. Karen, if you're listening, you're not forgotten. She's in Australia. Um, They'll have opportunities, wherever they are, to be witnesses for God. Why, why would we not prepare them right now? Yeah. We don't know what the details, what the circumstances will be, but we do know that they will have challenges and they will have opportunities to be witnesses. We can ask, where will the world be in 10 or 20 years? Lord have mercy. 
A society can turn against Christianity violently in a very short time. The likelihood of that in the United States is quite small, in my opinion. More likely, more likely, possible, more likely is we'll continue to face the temptations of materialistic comfort and spiritual apathy and in increasing intensity as the years go on. Are you preparing your children and your ministries for a difficult future? Right? Jesus prepared his guys for every difficulty that they would face. Now, God has flipped entire societies on their head before in a short amount of time. I encourage you, look up what happened in Wales in 1904. For no humanly understandable reason, everybody got fired up for Jesus in Wales between 1904 and 1905. And that that random revival spread to other countries. It spread to the UK, it spread to Scandinavia, it spread to Europe. Consider what happened in Korea. For some reason that I don't understand, of every society in Eastern Asia, Korean people seem to really take to the gospel of Jesus in a way that I, I don't know why. There's no, you know, there's no cult, there's no like direct line from Jerusalem to Seoul and Pyongyang, but they are hungry. They were hungry for the word a hundred years ago and have continued to be, right? Um, other, other countries have, have historically been completely closed off, have, have resisted uh, every single missionary attempt that's been sent there. We don't know what God can do. We have no idea. Even now, China. China's experiencing a dramatic interest in Christianity after being closed off for, for a century. Uh, China, peop, uh, church researchers say, China is probably the fastest growing ministry field in terms of the number of organizations and groups who are doing what they do in the name of Jesus. Right? That's pretty amazing to me. And it's all happening pretty undercover. Although our own country's trajectory seems now to be towards apathy and agnosticism, nothing can prevent God from turning that around. Are you preparing your children for a hard future? Are you also preparing your children for a ripe and unexpected harvest? I think the greatest, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is focus only on one and not the other. You know? If we get into a bunker, you know, buckle-down kind of mentality and seal ourselves off from the world... There's some, there's some short-term advantages to that, maybe, but we won't be ready for the harvest. And if we're blindly optimistic, everything will be fine, we will get absolutely rolled by the godless culture around us, okay? We've got to prepare for both. I've got to learn how to do that, I've got to be honest. <clears throat> Jesus began with the end in mind. We can, always, we can always go back to Jesus for our example, for our model. Jesus began with the end in mind. Jesus took the long generational view. The issues that Jesus addressed during his ministry, he wasn't playing whack-a-mole. He wasn't just fighting fires, jumping from crisis to crisis. Sometimes we can parent like that. Sometimes we can disciple like that. You know, what is the current horrible thing that's going on right now? Let me run as fast as I can and pour myself out for little effect and then look around frantically for the next awful thing. Right? Jesus didn't seem to do that. He was always preparing them for what was coming next. He was sharpening them. He always prepared them for the challenges and the opportunities. He impressed his father's words on them so that when the time came for Jesus to leave, they would be ready not just to survive, but in a sense to surpass even their teacher. In John 14, 12, 
Jesus said, this is one of the strangest passages in the whole Bible. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. So far, so good. I get that. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. That is hard to believe. And Jesus' scholars believe that this is focused mostly on, in, on, the, uh, on the impact that Jesus was preparing his people to have. At the end of Jesus' life, he had 11 shaky, convert, you know, shaky male disciples. And he seemed to have more than a handful of a lot more solid female disciples. <laughs> um, but he didn't have much. He didn't have much to show for it. The works that Jesus did, in one way of thinking ended with that handful of people. But in a larger sense, Jesus' works continue on to this day. And they're, and they're through us, and they're even greater than what Jesus himself could ever do. I want to challenge us. Are we beginning to parent? Are we beginning to disciple? Are we beginning to serve the church with the end in mind? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities that could come our way? We can, use the, uh, we can use our own experiences to say, this, these, are, these are the sorts of things that are probably going to happen in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. Are we preparing for challenge and for hardship? Are we preparing for something that's unexpected and amazing that God can do here in Blue Ridge? Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Seth Mitchell, and if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, you can go to blueridge.church or join us at Burnley Moran Elementary School at 7 p.m. Wednesdays or 10.30 a.m. Sundays in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.